That is what this book is all about. This salvation that comes from God that's free for all people. His ability to save through faith to everyone because there is no distinction. And so we talked about how in this series, in, in this book of Romans, it tells us about that gospel. Paul then takes that, that thesis statement and breaks it down to say, here's what I mean by the gospel. He kind of starts off by saying to us, there is a God and you are accountable to him. Everything you do is seen by this God that created you and made you and you are his. You're accountable to him. From there, Paul goes on to explain that. Um, not only are we accountable to this God who's loving and just and righteous, we've sinned against him. We were made in his image, but we have sinned against him and we've rebelled against him and we're hopeless without him. Remember, even in our religious efforts, even the greatest religious efforts still fall short of fixing the problem that's in our heart. Then comes Jesus. Then finally the good news came. And this is Jesus, God in the flesh, who lived a perfect life for us, died a sacrificial death and rose from the dead victoriously. Uh, what an amazing truth that he tells to us there. And then after we've seen all that, that there is a God, we've rebelled against him, but he sent Jesus away to fix us. How do we then respond to that? And that's where we pick up today, through faith. Through faith, we respond to, to, to Paul, or sorry, we, we respond to this gospel message by faith, believing, trusting. After Paul's explained all this stuff through these first three chapters, he's going to come up with a good illustration. As a pastor, as a preacher, you're always looking for good illustrations. It's one of the hardest parts of preaching. Um, reading the Bible, understanding it, breaking it down, that's difficult. That's kind of the foundation of the house, though. Um, a foundation without any walls is kind of hard to use, right? So as pastors preach, we, we build the foundation by explaining to you what the word means. But then we want to illustrate it as well. We want to shine light on it. We want to, in one sense, put the walls on the foundation with a good illustration. And that's a really hard thing to do. But what Paul does this morning and in this passage is he comes up with the perfect example, the perfect illustration for justification by faith. Remember, justification is that you're made right with God by believing in him. And who is the quintessential example of that in Scripture? It is Abraham. I'm not going to put you through the torture of singing the song with me. But you know the words of the song. Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Sometimes a children's song just gets theology right. Sometimes children's songs just get it right. That's so simple. But we've all sung it so many times that... We kind of forget really how true that is. We're going to see today, over today and next week, how Abraham really is our father in, in a real way. So let's pick up and read in chapter 4. We're going to read the first eight verses of this chapter. Romans 8, or sorry, Romans 4, 1 through 8. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 8. And it says this. What then... Shall we say was gained by Abraham, our father, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, 
His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So coming out of chapter 3, Paul points to this example of, of Abraham and says, hey, here's an example, here's proof that God really does interact with us by faith. Because as you can imagine, um, Paul's a very good arguer and he, he understands the questions that are coming. So if Paul's talking to the Jew and says, hey, everybody's a sinner, everybody needs to be made right with God, the Jews are like, yes, that's a true, but how are people made right? The Jew might say, would say, to follow God's law. Do the things that it's set out in his law so you can be made right before him. But Paul says, no, actually, it's not the way it is. We're saved by faith, faith in Jesus. And they would say, well, how is that even possible? And what does he do? He points back to the common um, ancestor that they would have, Abraham, and says, it's always been this way. From when God first called a people to himself, Abraham, when God first chose Abraham to make a family, God has interacted with us by faith. It's not like there's a God of the Old Testament that works according to law. And then there's the God of the New Testament that's super nice and shows grace through faith. Actually, God has always interacted with us on the basis of faith. Faith has always been the way he interacts with us. And that's proven to us in uh, Abraham. Abraham proves that God justifies by faith, not works. That's point number one. Abraham proves that God justifies by faith, not works. To realize that, we've got to understand what Abraham was doing, right? Abraham was hanging out in a country called Ur. You are. You probably read about it in, in your uh, world history class. That's where we get the name for urban, right? An urban is, uh, setting is a, a city setting. So Abraham came from a place called Ur, and God called him up. He said to him, Abraham, I want you to leave your country, get all your family together, and head west. I want you to go to a new country. So God called Abraham to leave his country, and God promised Abraham a new country, a new land where he would go. Not only did he promise him a new land, he said that that new land would be filled with a new people. God told Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make you into a, a nation that is, has as many people in it as the sand on the shores. And Abraham was old when God told him that. And Abraham did not have any kids when God told him that. Not only was he old, but his wife was old. Having a child was not really in the cards for them, as they would understand. But God promised that this family that he was going to give to Abraham was not just going to be a blessing to him as kids and grandkids are to us. His family was going to be a blessing to the world. He said, all nations on earth are going to be blessed by you. And as you can imagine, just like Mary, who was probably sitting there hearing from the angel that she was going to have a, a, a baby, even though she was a virgin, Abraham was probably like, I don't even get how that's possible. How is that even going to be possible? How is that going to be made to happen. But we have this passage in Genesis 15 
uh, that tells us about this. You, you don't have to turn to Genesis 15 if you don't want, but I'm going to be in Genesis 15. I want to read for you six verses from that. It says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, or actually it says Abram, in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Have you ever felt like Abraham in that moment? Like, you know the promises of God. You've read this book. You know the things that he says to you, but you just feel, I don't get how that's going to be possible, Lord. Uh, I look at my situation. I look at the things around me. Uh, I know what you say, but I know what I see. And those two things are not lining up. Those two things don't line up. Well, Abraham's in that situation. He finds himself in that situation that you find yourself in a lot of times too. And this is what God says to him. God says to him, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, talking about that Eleazar guy, he shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. God brought him outside and said to him, look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And verse six is the, is the, is the quote that Paul quotes. It says this, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. In that moment, Abraham walks out of his tent. Everybody else is sleeping. He's been laying in bed, just unable to sleep, flip-flopping back and forth. Gets up out of his tent, talking to God. God takes him outside, says, look up in the stars. No light pollution, no cities around to, to make the stars look dimmer. He looks up and he sees billions of stars. God says, count them, try to. Obviously, Abraham count, can't. And God says, that many kids you're going to have. And in that moment, Abraham heard those words and believed. There was a light that switched on. Just like in the morning when you, when you wake up and you, 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 there's the, you've been in the dark all night, you turn that light on, something just flashes, right? It's a, it's a light that comes on. A light came on in Abraham's heart. And he believed he had faith in that moment. So you got to think about what's going on in faith. When we say that we are supposed to respond to the gospel in faith, what does that mean? Well, it's not a mental exercise. Faith isn't a mental exercise. It's not just learn this information, pass this test, and you're good to go. That's not what faith is. Interestingly enough, Abraham had been having all kinds of conversations with God before this. Have you noticed that? He was talking to God. God told him, hey, leave, leave your country. Go here, go there. Genesis 15 is not the first place Abraham speaks or interacts with God. It's not the first place where he knows that there's a God. A lot of times we spend most of our life, I would even argue all of us, all humans, know that there is a God. The interesting thing about atheists is they don't believe in God and they hate him. Right? They hate the God that they don't believe is there. That's the irony of it. All people know that there is a God. But knowing there's a God is not the point. That's not what faith is. Faith isn't just having an awareness that something exists. It doesn't change us. 
It's not a mental exercise and it's not a magic formula. Faith is not a magic formula. It's not come down front, say these words, pray this prayer, sign this card, stamp your ticket to heaven. That's not what faith is. It's not a min- or it's not a magic formula that we say. Some religions, Islam, there's a phrase that they say, there's one God, but there's no God other than Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. They whisper that into their, their child's ear when they're born. And once that child can recite it, they're, they're Muslim. They have a formula that they can take to make them a Muslim. We don't have that in Christianity. We make a mistake when we think we've got like a sinner's prayer uh, that saves us. But that prayer is not something uniform that every person says. It's not like there's a, a prescribed prayer that we pray from the Bible. Because faith is not reciting a line. It's not some magic formula that we have to do. It's not some special spell that we read from a book. It is faith is not a magic formula. And faith isn't just being spiritual. Have you heard people say that? It's very common nowadays for people to be spiritual but not religious. I don't even know exactly what that means, but I know it's some people's approach to life. They want to be spiritual, meaning they want to have this 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 uh, outlook on life where there's something more than what I see, but they don't want it to be within some kind of religion. Well, faith isn't just being spiritual and thinking that there's more to life than than just what you can see. That's not faith. Faith is this. Faith is the belief in who God is. And what he says and does and a dependence on that truth for life. Faith is the belief in who God is and what he says and does and a dependence on that truth for life. So, for example, if you're on an island. And that island somehow is going to sink into the ocean and there's a boat at the edge of the island You can know that there's a boat on the edge of the island. You can see the boat. You can even tell somebody, hey, if we get in that boat, we're going to get saved. But you are not going to be saved from that destruction unless you get into the boat, unless you depend on the boat for your salvation. That is what faith is. Faith isn't just being aware that there's a boat. Faith is getting into the boat, depending on that boat for your salvation. Faith in Jesus is not just, hey, I know there was a Jesus. Hey, I can read about Jesus in a history book or even this book. I can tell somebody what Jesus does for us. Faith is when you truly finally believe the light clicks on and you realize if I believe and trust in what Jesus did, I'm saved from my sin. When that happens in your heart, when that light comes on in your heart, when you go from death to life, that is what faith is. It's not those other things. And when we share the gospel with people, when we send, when, we, when I send you out every week, say, hey, if we're leaving, we gather here on Sunday, go out into the world. As you're sharing your faith with other people, if you're telling them how to respond to Jesus, we have to be clear what we mean by that. It's not say this magic formula. It's not, hey, be acknowledging that there's a God out there. We're saying you have to depend, put your faith and trust in what Jesus has done for you. Believing who God is and what he does and says and having a dependence on that truth for life. That's salvation. But notice, as Paul's proving his point, Abraham is proof that God justifies by faith and not by works. Verse 4 says this. 
Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Say this, if salvation is by works, then God owes you something. I want to say that again. If salvation was by works, God owes you something. God owes you something. Salvation by works puts God in debt. It says to God, you owe me. All of us at some point in time, whether you still have a job or you you haven't got a job yet, if you're a kiddo, or you're done working, you don't have a job anymore. When you work for that boss, that boss is indebted to you in some form or fashion because you've worked for them. If you you make $10 an hour, you work for an hour, they owe you that $10. And when we walk into our, our, uh, the, our boss's office or when we receive that money from our boss that works, we don't look at that and think, oh, my goodness, thank you so much for this. We're, we don't say that, right? We say if it's not there on time, we're like, hey, what's going on? It's, it's the first of the month. Where's my check? Hey, it's the 15th. Give me my money. Right? We're saying to them, you owe me this. Give it to me. If we approach salvation as if it was by works, we'd be saying to God, give me what you owe me. Give me the, the, the payment for my righteous deeds. Look what I've done and give me what I deserve for what I've done. If salvation were by works, we would be putting God in debt. And notice salvation by works also makes us ungrateful. Like I just said, you don't thank your boss for your check, really. You're thankful for the idea that you have a job, you work, and they give you money. You're thankful for that in general, but it, you don't like write a thank you note and send them a care package in response to them handing you your check, right? Because you don't. that's just not what you do. It's what's owed to you. If we treat salvation like it's salvation by works, then we lose the fact that we should be thankful to God. We lose that. So if salvation was by works, then God owes you something. But since salvation is by faith, then God gives you everything. God gives you everything. Salvation by faith removes the debt that you owed. It takes that debt away. And salvation makes you grateful. We can respond the way that we're supposed to respond with faith and gratitude. So we've seen number one, Abraham proves that God justifies by faith and Abraham and David in parentheses proves that God justifies the ungodly. Abraham proves that God justifies by faith and it proves that God justifies by or justifies the ungodly. Think about Abraham. Abraham was considered the father of faith, not only of the nation of Israel, but we even look to him as the father of faith. The one who trusted in the midst of a very difficult situation. Yet he did some really dumb stuff. And in this passage, Abraham is considered ungodly. Right? He's considered ungodly. Verse 4 talked about if you work, you get your wages. Verse 5 says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. Paul's saying Abraham was one of those people that trusted in the one who justifies the ungodly. Abraham was considered ungodly. David is another example he points to. Right after that, he says, David also speaks of the blessing of salvation. 
David was a man after God's own heart, right? That's his nickname that he gets from the, Old Test- from the Old Testament. He was a man after God's own heart. David was the greatest king there's ever been. Greatest, he was considered the greatest poet. Most of, a lot of the songs are attributed to David. David was the greatest warrior, right? We think of his battle with Goliath, but he also had many other battles and fights. He was a warrior king. He was the greatest in all these things, a great king, a great poet, a great warrior, but he was also a great sinner. David was a great sinner, ungodly. And if you want to talk about a guilty conscience, David would have one. David stole another man's wife. He stole another man's wife. There's debate about whether um, she participated in this or his power dynamic made it more of a rape situation. But either way, he's way out of line for what he did. He stole another man's wife. Then he got her pregnant. And after getting her pregnant, he tries to trick the husband into coming home from war to sleep with his wife that he might think that baby's his. But the, the husband's so faithful to the cause of being in war that he won't even sleep inside his house. He sleeps outside on the front porch. And so when David realizes, well, this attempt to justify and cover up my sin isn't working, let me send him back to war. And David sends the husband back to war, not just to war, but on the very front lines of the war so that the guy would die. And then he took the, the, the wife as his own. Talk about a guilty conscience. And it doesn't stop there. He goes on from there and the baby dies. The baby that, he, that, he, that he's going to have with this woman dies. I mean, I, you cannot imagine the guilt and the remorse that would have been going through his heart. Or maybe you can. Maybe you didn't have that exact same story in your life. But maybe you feel the same way about your sin. Maybe you look back and say, man, if you think David had a guilty conscience, you should feel mine. Maybe even right now, maybe you've been a Christian for years, but somehow still you, you live with and you bear the weight and guilt of your sin. It is a heavy load. It is heavy. And what does David say in the Psalms? He said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Think about that phrase, lawless deeds, on that guy's tongue. Yeah, it's true. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That is a blessing that we hear so much and forget so much how big that blessing is. Because week in, week out, we come in and we sing all of these songs about God giving us forgiveness and redemption. Um, we, we come in and sing all these songs about Jesus dying for our sins and rising from the dead that we sometimes get bored with it. But we should not get bored with that. I think we'd probably be less bored with that if we talked more about how that truth applies in our lives. If you want to be reminded about how awesome it is that you're saved, tell somebody about how you got saved. Tell them about that story of how you were forgiven of your sins. And that's going to start to humble you when you mention some of the things that you might, might have been involved in before you were a Christian. That'll humble you and that'll remind you 
I'm very thankful that the things I'm speaking of right now are not counted against me anymore. As a matter of fact, it's not just that your sins aren't counted against you. God writes in your ledger righteous. That's what it means that Abraham in this passage was counted righteous, considered righteous. What that means is when he believed for the first time, those sins were erased and he was given righteousness. He was given righteousness. If you think of maybe like a whiteboard, uh, how many of you ever use a whiteboard and you write on that dude so much that eventually, no matter how much you actually erase that, that marker, there's still this like this stain of, of marker board on there, right? It's just like you cannot get that, that black to go away. So you got to go and buy the Expo stuff and spray it on there. And so that way it'll come off. But in some way, that, that whiteboard is still stained with that, that marker. But instead of Jesus coming in and just erasing the, the, the black that's on your marker board of your sin, instead of, of erasing that, what he does is he takes that whole marker board away and gives you his marker board that has never even thought about having a marker on it. Perfect. Still in the wrapper. That's how pristine Jesus' righteousness was. And he gives it to you. It's not just that he wipes away your sin. It's that he takes away the whole the whole concept of you being a sinner and hands you the concept of you are righteous. That's what it means that he was counted as righteous. I heard a story one time. I think it illustrates this perfectly. There was an old Englishman who lived in London. He was rich and he bought himself a Rolls Royce. And this is uh, this was a long time ago. And Rolls Royce was saying this is the car of cars and it's never going to break down. You will never have any problem with it if you buy this Rolls Royce. So he bought himself a Rolls Royce. He decided he wanted to go travel on mainland Europe. So he crossed the, crossed the channel there and he drove his Rolls Royce to France. And when he got to France, his Rolls Royce broke down. So he called up Rolls Royce and the people, uh, they came out and said, he said, I've got a problem. Um, the car that is, you've given me, it's broken down um, and I need somebody to come fix it. So Rolls-Royce sends out him again. They flew him from England to France. He came where the guy's car was, and, and the car was actually broken, so he fixed it. Um, the mechanic got back on the plane, flew back to England, so the guy finished his trip. And weeks went by, and the owner never got a bill for the Rolls-Royce repair. He kept waiting, he kept waiting. He thought, you know what, I, I need to pay for this bill. So he calls up Rolls-Royce and tells him the situation and the country where he got it fixed. And the person on the phone uh, replies to him, Sir, with all due respect, we have no record of anything ever having gone wrong with your car. The same applies to us. Jesus looks at our life and says, I have no record of ever, anything having ever gone wrong in your life. That's what it means that we are justified, that we are made right with God through faith. He looks at us as if nothing has ever gone wrong. He sees you through the eyes of the cross so that whatever you do in your life or so whatever sins you've done in your life, those can be wiped away and you can be made right. Just like Abraham, when he believed, when he trusted in who God was, in that moment, he was made right with God. You can be too. Because he justifies the ungodly. And J.I. Packer says this, 
Nobody can produce new evidence of your depravity that will make God change his mind. God justified you with his eyes open. He knew the worst about you at the time when he accepted you for Jesus' sake. And the verdict which he passed on that day was and is final. Nothing can be brought up against the one who's trusted in Jesus for salvation because God has already declared it right. And that can be you this morning. We've talked about faith this morning and what that means. A lot of times we associate that moment of believing, trusting in Jesus for the first time. We, we associate that with this part of the auditorium, right? You come forward during the response. You pray some prayer, right? But that's not what faith is. Faith isn't getting up, walking an aisle, praying a prayer, bowing at a bench. Faith can happen not at this part of the auditorium, but it can happen at the back of the auditorium. If you want to come to me after service and say, hey, I've never had true faith in Jesus, you can do that at the back of the auditorium with me today, and I can talk to you more about that. Also, it doesn't have to happen at the front of the auditorium or the back of the auditorium. Faith can happen for you in a moment, in a pew, in your heart. Because remember, faith is not about doing things on the outside, but believing on the inside, trusting in who Jesus is, what he says and does, and depending on that for life. And that can be you this morning. And if you know people in your life who need that, that can be them. You don't have to. I would love for them to come to church, bring them to church. That's awesome. But you don't have to share Christ with somebody at church. You can share Christ with somebody at work or at school or wherever you are. Because faith doesn't have to happen in a certain spot. It has to happen in your heart as you believe in Christ. Because faith is not, we're not justified by works, but we're justified by faith. Let's pray.